to kind of be resuming our series in Nehemiah. We're kind of coming around third base on Nehemiah. For the fall, we'll have a new series. We'll get into that in a few weeks. But for now, we're going to kind of really, really wrap up the, the primary thrust of this book. And so today we're continuing our Nehemiah Building for the Future series in chapters 9 and 10. And it's kind of encouraging because uh, today's a communion day, as you see. So keep that in mind as we, as we move towards uh, a rather difficult subject today. Keep in mind that the answer to the subject, sin and repentance, is, is going to be right before our eyes as we remember who Jesus is and what he has done with us. And so in chapters 9 and 10, a uh, pretty dominant theme. And that's, that's fair to say because the whole book of Nehemiah has a pretty dominant theme. It's really been aimed at helping us to understand what God expects of those people that he wants to use to build his kingdom. Uh, when we come into relationship with God, he actually has some expectations for, uh, for us. And so the book really does chronicle a group of people and how they came back to God and what those expectations were. And so today, we're talking about uh, sin and repentance, which, let's be frank, is not necessarily a popular idea in our culture. And sometimes in our own lives, this is not a a popular subject to discuss, to meditate on, or even to to practice. But it it is essential for the Christian to understand. Because as followers of Jesus, we will never truly experience God's grace. This is the, th- the stuff we always want, right? We want to experience grace. We want to know the fullness of Jesus. We don't ever fully experience grace and the fullness of Christ if we don't understand what we have been re- redeemed from. In other words, grace is deeply connected to sin, and sin is deeply connected to grace. You cannot understand uh, either fully without an understanding of the other. So today we have this great opportunity to talk a little bit about the problem of sin, and how it keeps us from becoming who God wants us to be. Remember, that's the premise of this book, is God taking a people who are in a position in life that, that really isn't great. They are far from him. They are discouraged and disgruntled. They are hurting. They're at a place where they don't want to be. And one of the reasons they are not at the place God wants them to be is because, in this case, they have just walked away from him. I mean, the greatest sin we see in the book of Nehemiah, the one they're recovering from, God's people, is that they just absolutely stopped loving their God. So we have this, this significant problem, this great issue, but an even greater opportunity that, to then celebrate how God in his grace actually dealt with the issue. The Lord's table really is a, is a reminder of this. As we think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, we're able to speak of grace because of what we will celebrate when we come to the table. Now, maybe you're asking, why is it that coming back from vacation, we're going to talk about sin? <laughs> and the truth is that it's because it's where we're at in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. And so if you were to kind of chronicle, the reason we only read one, one verse, if you will, two, two verses out of one section of these two chapters, is because they really are a good summary point of what chapters 9 and 10 are. It's one long recollection of how God's people have sinned against him and how God in every instance shows, shows them mercy. That's what's happening. The Israelites are now saying, you know, God, and then we were stiff-necked and we did this. But because you're a good God and a gracious God, you, you forgave us. It's this beautiful contrast between how they walked away from God and how God, because of his faithfulness, kept pursuing them, what Abe just prayed about. Now, one of the most amazing things that we see in the book of Nehemiah is how God's spirit works amongst his people to draw them back to him. And as his spirit is working, some pretty important things have happened. I won't spend a, a ton of time recapping where we've been, but I will recap these three ideas because they are influential in what we're about to talk about today. Remember, as God's people begin migrating back to God because the spirit is working in them, they do a couple of very important things, or at least they begin again doing some important things. They start studying scripture, they start praying, they start loving each other, they start serving their city. They start beginning to embrace the the, the disciplines of what it means to follow God in our world of what it means to pursue Jesus. 
And these disciplines, as they begin to embody the very idea of who God is and what he has set them apart to do, as they are drawing close to him in these areas, God then, he begins speaking into their lives. And he begins showing them in very critical areas the places where they have failed and where they have sinned against him in the past. And the beautiful thing about this is that this whole kind of ecosystem of things that are happening, they're pursuing God, they're in his word, they're serving the city, they're praying with each other, they're caring for each other. As all this is happening, they, they then are compelled to seek forgiveness from both God and each other. And God, because he is faithful, does just that. He forgives them. And the byproduct of this is, it's a relational byproduct, is that he draws them closer to him. And it really is, a, it's a very lengthy, but a very beautiful picture of sin and, and repentance. Now that said, very clear picture in scripture, a very beautiful kind of understanding of what's happening. This, this narrative is deeply human because we all struggle with this stuff. But when we, when we read about this, there's clarity in scripture, but oftentimes not as much clarity in our lives or maybe even in our culture. There is a lot of confusion about what sin and repentance is, even in the Christian life. And this leads me to the first truth that I want to share with you today about this. We're, we're going to just generally talk through sin and repentance this morning. And we'll begin by making this statement, which I think is a very accurate one. Sin is a, a word that is often misunderstood because its seriousness has not been properly conveyed. So, so the root issue that we deal with here is that the reason why we misunderstand this is because we actually have not, we've not put the teeth into this that it is required to fully understand the significance of what it means to, to sin. Now, let me kind of back up here for a second. On the surface level, this probably sounds a little bit like a contradiction, and especially if you're coming from an unchurched background or maybe a new church background, maybe you're thinking based on cultural experience or church experience that a lot of what you have seen when it comes to Christianity, especially when it comes to particular people who, who really believe that sin is real, is that they take it too seriously. Maybe like they're incredibly aggressive with it. This is unfortunately the only stuff that ever gets put on the news. But maybe you've dealt with people who, who seem to have great joy or take great joy in reminding people uh, that they are sinners. Like they so believe in this that this is the only thing they ever talk about. And part of the reality of that is that they, they make it a point to constantly remind you that your job, maybe even your only job as a Christian, the only way God will love you, is if you get to this place in your life where you can start purging all of the bad behaviors, whatever those behaviors are. Maybe you've had experiences with people who are abrasive. We use words like legalism or moralism to describe this kind of chronic problem. They seem to be like experts in pointing out all of the standards that God has and then reminding you that you can never meet them. And sometimes, very self-righteously, they do this contrasting their lives with yours. They remind you about how they do do these things. Now, for example, I'll share with you a story that I shared with you a few years ago. This is a true story, and it is the most pointed personal experience I've had with this thing. I guess you might say, for me, this truth became very evident because I was sitting under it one Sunday uh, in, a, in a worship environment just like this. I had gone to... Um, to a, a friend's church. I was a very new Christian. And a lot of these concepts, yes, I had heard these words, sin and redemption and grace and Jesus. These words were not new to me, but the reality of them kind of working in my heart really was. And so when I had first become a Christian, I, and even to this day, I, I have always had like this voracious mind. I just want to learn and study and grow. And so I, I was invited to this this talk about relationships at a church on Sunday. I was a single man at the time, and I wanted to get married. And so I thought, hey, I'll go to this thing because the idea of sin is new to me. The idea of marriage is new to me. And this guy was talking about how sin could hurt relationships. So I went there and was all ears. And the main talk, the main point of the talk from this guy was, was basically, this is kind of a no-brainer, that you know, dwelling in sin would destroy your relationships. Like It would be really hard to have a healthy marriage if you began doing some of the things that were contrary to what makes relationship healthy. 
right? Now that actually all sounded good. But in his talk, literally, he, he then began to run through like this bullet point list of every single thing you could do to like mess up our relationship. And that was really hard to hear. After a while, I mean, straight up, like my heart was fatigued. I kept thinking like, man, is there any good that happens in a relationship? Or is it really just that the, the, way, that we, the way that we learn how to have healthy relationships is by basically guilting ourselves to death and reminding ourselves of everything that we shouldn't do. And so really at the end of this, my heart, because God designed it this way, was waiting and hoping for some measure of hope. I was wanting some form of encouragement, but it never came. In fact, it got worse. And if you remember this a couple years ago, he gave this kind of climatic uh, nursery rhyme poem. And he said, listen, when it comes to dating, he, this stupid statement, you know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I never date girls who do. And this was like the, the driving life-changing point of his message. Now, listen, um, I, I have actually heard some really bad sermons in my life, but to date, that is the worst one that I've ever heard. And that's a big statement because I have listened to a lot of talks and I have even been on the giving end of a few that were not so great, right? So it's a pretty profound statement. Now, let me, let me drive home the point of this. Um, I don't do any of these things. I have no biases against those who do. There's obviously some potential health issues connected with them. But the problem here is not those issues themselves. The, the point I'm trying to make here is that I remembered hearing that talk and questioning the substance of it, the motivation of it, because something was deeply off about it. I didn't even fully understand it then, but it did not resonate with me. Because what this guy was clearly saying was, listen, if you, in this case, if you want to get rid of sin in your, <laughs> sin in your relationships... <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> if you want, I don't know what that was. Are we good that it will never, ever in the history of restoration happen again? Excellent. Okay, you're, you're awake now. Um, okay. Yes, God is listening. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so <laughs> so we'll, we'll proceed with your permission. Uh, the, the, the main thrust of what this guy was saying was is if, you want to, if you want to clean up your life, if you, if you want to remove sin from your life, then you really have to heavily focus on, on external actions on the outside of your life. Because once you stop doing all of this stuff, everything is going to work out. In other words, the remedy was stop doing this, and then you'll be godly or holy. Um, not really, actually. Let's try this for a second and see how that goes. All right, we'll give that a minute, and maybe I'll move it away and see. Um, <clears throat> the idea is that once you clean up the outside of your life, everything, everything then falls in line. Now, here's the problem with that. It's actually just not true. In fact, if you, if you understand Christian living and the gospel, this is actually a very antithetical way to understand the Christian faith. Because to live like this really means that you don't fully understand the nature of sin or how to genuinely repent from it. So let's take a minute to define it. A good definition of sin, simply put, is to miss God's mark. It's one of the simplest and clearest ways to describe it. And I love how Millard Erickson dis- defines sin in his Concise Dictionary of Christian Theology. He says this, it'll be behind me. And think about this. Let's meditate on it for a moment. Sin is any act, any attitude, and here is perhaps where my friend missed this, this idea in his talk, or disposition of the heart that fails to completely fulfill or measure up to the standards of God's righteousness. So let me pause here and explain something. By disposition of the heart, it means that by simply not doing something, does not necessarily mean that you're not sinning. So Jesus, perhaps in his teachings, gives us the clearest evidence of this, where he says, listen, guys, like it's not enough now to just not have an adulterous affair with your spouse, to even have the thought now begins to move you towards this idea of, of sin. Or it's not enough to say like, hey, I haven't physically murdered somebody, but if you harbor such malice in your life against somebody, if the disposition of your heart is anger and wrath and hate towards another person, it's the spiritual equivalent of, of murdering them. 
This is what we mean by a disposition of the heart. It doesn't even have to be a physical act. It can actually just be a posture of the way you see life. So it's any act, attitude, or disposition of the heart that fails to completely fulfill or measure up to the standards of God's righteousness. And like I said, it may involve an actual transgression of God's law or a failure to live up to his norms or a failure to hit his mark. So think of this definition of sin like this. Let's kind of jump out of this definition to an analogy. Think of an archer. Okay? An archer's sole goal is to take his arrow, her arrow, and to shoot it into the direct center of, of a bullseye. That's what makes an archer an archer. They are, they are brilliant at this task. And when it comes to sin, God really is the expert archer who has designed the world to function in a very specific way. There are genuinely bullseye heart attitudes when it comes to the way that we desire to treat God, to treat each other, to treat ourselves, to treat the world that we, that we live in. There is kind of a way that he desires. And we know, if you've read your scripture, that God has no problem hitting his mark. However, this is not always true for us. Sometimes we have very serious problems hitting the mark. Sometimes we might miss the mark so much that we might do damage to our own lives or to people that we deeply care about. So in light of that, I want to make this statement. If you, if you believe that the way you hit God's mark in life, the way that you please God, the way that you, that, that you bring a smile to your Father's face in heaven, the way that you, you know, steer yourself away from sin is by managing behavior, just seeing, like, cleaning your life up with the things that you do, then, then no pun intended, we truly have missed the mark. Now, I want to be super clear here that there, there are very clear teachings in Scripture. We would call them scriptural morality. There are things in the Bible that, that God absolutely calls sin. And we know that to be a Christian, this is kind of an unpopular statement today, but one of the evidences of, of us actually pursuing Jesus is that our lives begin to take on the morality of Christ, that we no longer care in the ways that we desire to care, but the way that we care is now in the way that Jesus cared. The same convictions and burdens and passions he had for people in the world that he lived in, part of the evidence that we're growing in Jesus is that we're beginning to look like Jesus in those areas. So, so Christianity truly has a major effect on who we are and how we live. It has to. I'm not trying to undermine that teaching. However, we make a real mistake if we only see sin as as an external action like this, and we miss the fact that it is a deep-seated condition of the heart that also drives those actions. In other words, there's, there's a motor deep inside us driving what we do, good or bad. And you can actually flip this paradigm and look at it from the other side of the fence, the, the side of the fence that we're actually examining in, in Nehemiah, right? On the contrary, the same can be true when we speak of holy living or righteous living or actually living in ways that do honor God. And this is what we see happening in Nehemiah. In our story, the Israelites are, are no longer pursuing selfish desires. They're now beginning to embrace what it means to love God. They're, they're stepping away from a, a failed relationship with God, and they're trying to pursue him again with all their heart, soul, and mind. They are really pursuing righteousness before God again. And so much like sinful behaviors, we would, we would be naive to say that holiness, God, God was pleased with the Israelites just because they decided to try to love him again, or they decided to care for their neighbor. Holiness is much more than just an external action. Just, you know, just being a good person or doing good deeds is not the root definition of what it means to be holy. It means that God has put his holiness in you, and the validation of the things you do is when they are rooted in a genuine love and desire to honor God and to serve others. That, that's how that stuff actually matters to God. It's when the motive of our heart aligns with the motive of God. That's when our deeds are, are valued by God. Now, disconnecting our heart from actions, good or bad, because you can look at this from both sides of the coin, which is what we're doing, it was such a problem in Jesus' day, and it truly is still a problem in our day, that he regularly spoke against it. And the, the most clearest teaching he gave us against this is in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-seven. Now, here he's dealing with 
essentially the, the holiness issue. He's dealing with a group of, of Pharisees who think that God loves them because of the great things that they do. And he says this to them very, very kind of pointedly. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. He says, you know, you're living like hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. He says, on the outside, you look beautiful, but on the inside, you're full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. These guys had all the right stuff. They, they, had, the, they had the external appearance of holiness, but inside he said, you're, you're dead. You're dried up because you're missing the heart of God in everything you're doing. And so what Jesus says to us here is, we greatly misunderstand sin, and we greatly misunderstand holy living, if we think that it is only talking about what the exterior of our lives look like. And oftentimes when we get so focused on the behavior, what happens is we begin to neglect the interior motives of the heart. And the heart, we've said here a myriad of times, it is the physical, the spiritual, and the emotional control center of our lives. The heart dictates what we do. It actually drives our actions. So to focus on the action disconnected from the muscle that, that, that creates action in our lives, that drives us toward good or bad deed, whatever it is, is, is really faulty. And I think the best way to describe this, this kind of internal exterior tension that we're talking about, is, is this idea of an iceberg. I've shared this with you before. Think about that adage where we say like, hey, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And that idea is meant to communicate something pretty pointed. It's meant to say, like, listen, when we talk about a problem or an issue, wherever it is, when we say it's just the tip of the iceberg, we're recognizing that there's something we can see. There is a visible part, a a fraction of what is happening is actually visible. But we know that there's something much deeper. There's There's an issue beneath the issue that is actually creating the problem. In other words, you see the top of the iceberg, but you actually don't see the major block of ice under the ice, which dictates where the iceberg goes. So think about an iceberg. I know most of you have spent a lot of time in Alaska, right? Think about this. If you want to change the direction of an iceberg, you would be pretty foolish to try to get up on the top of that and to push the tip. It goes nowhere because the the invisible area that's stuffed the big kind of block of ice under the water is actually what, what moves the iceberg. It is directing where the tip goes. And so what Jesus says here is if you spend your days attempting to correct your behavior, whether that is trying to stop sinning or trying to live in a way that honors God, if you spend all your days just trying to to stop or start behaviors, you're really beginning to live like a whitewashed tomb. What's happening is, is you're worrying about the outside of life, and by worrying on the outside of life, you're really beginning to rely solely in your own will to bring change about. You're no longer dwelling in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about change in your heart. And because of that, it is destined to fail. We cannot fabricate that kind of life change. We can tap into the power of Jesus Christ through his spirit, and he can bring it about in us. Now, on the contrary, right? Here you have the warning from Jesus. Let's look at the healthy evidence of what we see in Nehemiah. On the contrary, one of the key reasons that we see God's people right, coming back to him one of the reasons we see that they're able to, to genuinely identify the root of their sin, right? And then they, they, they receive genuine forgiveness from God for it is because they're starting to understand this again. Remember, we're getting towards the back end of this book, so they have been now walking with God for quite some time. And one of the, re- the, the realities of this is that the more they spent time with God, the more they be- began to understand who God is, and the more they began to value God's role in this process, in chapter 9, verse 20, this will not be behind me. I'll just kind of paraphrase it. Nehemiah tells us that one of the graces that God showed his people, one of the reasons why they were now beginning to say, hey, I realize, God, I've been like really stiff-necked before you, but, but you're a good God and a gracious God. And even when I was walking away from you, you were pursuing me. The reason they're coming to these spiritual epiphanies is because of what he tells us in 920. One of the graces God promised his people 
is that if they were willing to follow him, then he would give them his good and merciful spirit to guide them in life. So he's saying, listen, if you want to pursue me, then you pursue me with me. You can't pursue me without me. And so my promise to you, fulfilled in Nehemiah and certainly like uber fulfilled in the New Testament, is the presence and the promise of the Holy Spirit in our lives, who is directing our steps and guiding our efforts and affirming our hearts where we fail and, and affirming our hearts where we please God. In other words, he's saying, listen, if you, if you truly want to understand the weight of sin in your life, if you want to move beyond the textbook definition of missing the mark and have it get to the place where it actually penetrates your heart to where it creates change, if you want to understand how it will keep you from becoming who God wants you to be, then you have got to invite your Father in heaven into this conversation. You must be willing to let his Spirit speak into every area of your life. Because frankly speaking, God will always be more honest with us about where we are with him than we are willing to be with ourselves. I want to say that again because this is an important point. The reason we need God in this process is because God is always going to be objective with us. He's always going to be honest with us. And as much as I would like to say that we can always be honest and objective with ourselves, the reality is is that we are not always honest and objective with ourselves. And here's why. It's not easy to do that. It's not easy to always honestly and objectively evaluate where you are, especially when it comes to, to our histories or even our present histories. We as people have a habit of rewriting our own life story oftentimes to look like either the hero or the victim of it. You know, we can look at a situation in a place where we might have made a grave mistake, and and it's very easy to justify like, hey, I'm in the right here, or something so grievously grievous to happen to me that, that, that it made me the victim of it. Now, I'm not saying there are not times when we are not the hero or the victim, but what happens is over time, we can actually begin to justify this complex. We can always be the hero or always be the victim. Sometimes we get so comfortable and expert in justifying uh, sinful attitudes and, a- and actions. We get to this place where we're, we're just feeling like we're never in the wrong or that we never make mistakes or that we don't struggle with stuff or that it's never our fault. We can, we can believe that so much that we now begin to embrace beliefs or ideas or actions that are actually deeply far from God, but we have actually somehow justified them in our lives. This is what we call living in the lie. It's when we get to the place in our lives where we no longer have the ability to objectively see ourselves. We just can't anymore. But yet we get adamant about describing who we are and who we are not. Now, when this happens, or if this happens, if we get to the place where we can no longer see ourselves, honestly, and we've excluded God from speaking into our lives, or we've cut the community off, or we're not in the world, we we eliminate all the things that actually do speak into our lives, what happens is we will never get to the place the Israelites do in our story. And this is where we should want to be. It is the place where they are no longer afraid to admit that they were not the hero nor the victim in their past histories. They're at this honest place where they're saying, listen, um, I have actually come to the place where I realize I have done things and there have been failures in my life against God and my peers that were actually just straight up, straight up my fault. They weren't denying it. They weren't justifying it. They were, they were learning to dwell in a, pa- a place of peace where they were living in God's truth, where they were able to own that stuff and release it and seek freedom from it. They got to the place where they were living in God's truth because God made good on his promise. If you pursue me, I will give you my spirit. I will guide you in your pursuit. No matter where you go, I will be there to direct your steps. They were at this amazing place. They went from a people disconnected and far from God who are now pursuing God in light of who he is. They're gauging who they are against his character and his expectations. They're loving neighbor the way God would love neighbor, not based on what they thought they should do. They are pursuing God with heart, soul, and mind like this. And the truth is that living like this is the only way that you will genuinely understand where you struggle with sin. 
You, you, unless you have an objective voice of truth in your life, you will never understand objectively where you are. You will have subjective leanings in all areas of life. The only way to genuinely understand where you struggle with sin and how to ask God to forgive you of it and how to find grace through it is to invite God into the process. Now I want you to think about this for a minute as we transition to the second idea I want to talk to you about this morning. As believers, especially if you're in this room saying, I pursue Christ, as believers who claim to love God, this is something we should all want to do. So if you're wrestling with faith, this, you're in a different place. But if you're in the faith, this is actually a normative desire of the heart. Our, our desire should be to say, like, this is what I want every day of my life. With all my heart, soul, and mind, I, I want to do this. I, wanna, I want God to speak into my life, and I want him to help me become more like Christ every day. We should all want that. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. If you do want that, or you're exploring wanting this, if the only way to overcome sin you have a healthy understanding of it, the only way to overcome it and to find God's grace is to press into the power of God through the cross. That's what happens in the Old Testament, right? They're pressing into the power of God. Now, we're going to kind of jump into the New Testament for a few minutes here. Living in the power of the cross means that when you see God as your ultimate source of strength, then, then what happens is you realize he is the one that helps you to become who, you, who we want you to be. That is the main point of Nehemiah 9 and 10. Nehemiah teaches us that the way we change the way we become more like God, the way we learn to have an objective understanding of who we are and are not, the way we begin to gauge how we really are treating people, how we really see life, is, is by inviting God into our lives. It's by recognizing and living in the power of God's grace. Now, in New Testament terms, we call this living in the power of Jesus' cross. And it's the only way to grow in Christ. And here's why. Think about this for a few minutes. It's at the cross, right, where God's grace we're talking about grace right now, but grace fully appears to us at the foot of the cross. It's there that Jesus offers us complete and total life redemption. He doesn't just say, hey guys, listen, I'm going to get put on this tree to clean your lives up a little bit, squeak you up some. That's not what he says. He says, listen, I'm going to go to this cross for you because I want to bring healing to every area of your life. I want to restore wholeness where it does not exist. Where your heart is fractured, I want to make that right. I want to mend the brokenness that, we, that every single one of us struggles with. Different areas, different degrees, but wherever that brokenness is, he says, listen, I'm on this cross because I'm going to mend that. I'm going to spend my days mending that in your life. And one day, I promise you, it will not happen on this earth, but when we leave this place, I'm going to mend it perfectly forever. There's going to come a day where we don't use words like healing and brokenness anymore because it won't even be in our vocabulary, because it won't even be in our hearts, because Jesus will deal with it permanently. The understanding of sin and grace like this runs far deeper. Sin meaning we have fractured our relationship with God. Grace meaning he is the great potter who mends it. Understanding sin and grace like that runs far deeper than just trying to manage behavior. It actually ministers to us in the depths of our soul. It seeks out the places of our hearts that we don't even know are hurt. And if you need further proof of how serious God takes the problem of sin, then really we return to the evidence of the cross. The offer of God's grace, it only comes to us that, that healing, that wholeness, that, that genuine pursuit that Jesus shows us, that love, it only comes to us because Jesus gave himself up for us. And at the cross, he doesn't just want to shape our lives into something different. He does want to do that. But the root of how he shapes life is by offering us this incredible and vital relationship with him. He says, listen, I want you to be united to me and my Father in heaven forever. He says, I want you to live like you are my son or my daughter at the cross, we find hope that whatever we deal with, whatever our sin or life issue is, that G Jesus can deal with it. 
He doesn't just want to make you look different. He wants to remedy the hurts of your heart. Now, let me say this. Uh, the cross, to me, is uh, it's a paradox of sorts because it is a bittersweet, um, it's, it's a bittersweet reality in the Christian faith. And let me explain what I mean by this. As we talk about sin and repentance, on one hand, when, when we look to the cross, it reminds us of a few things. If you objectively and honestly look at the cross and you let it speak to you the way God wants it to, it's going to remind you of the depths of sin. It's going to remind us of the places we do not live up to the mark that God has set before us. If we will let God, he will point out the part of the iceberg we won't see or we can't see or maybe even refuse to see. It's going to point out the deep-seated attitudes of our heart that, that drive our behavior, both good and bad. It's at the cross that Jesus reminds us of who we are in light of his Father, right? And that being very straight up, to get comfortable looking at the cross, for those of us that profess faith in it, to get comfortable looking at the cross, but yet continually sinning against our Father, Jesus says this is an abuse, abusive relational behavior. In fact, Hebrews says it's like continually putting Jesus back on the cross. Hebrews tells us that if, if you are a believer, right, who's become content with living in sin, I'm not saying you, you, you mess up, we all do that, but I'm saying like you are pursuing Jesus, but then just genuinely pursuing the things that are not of God, and you're comfortable with that. He says, listen, if you become content with that, you, you have to ask yourself, if you believe in what the cross represents, that Jesus gave his life to redeem you and to free you of sin, then you have to ask, why is it that you choose to take advantage of that grace? what we call cheap grace here, because it's literally like renailing Jesus to the cross every time. You're just good with it. Get up on there again. Forgive me. Get up on there again. Forgive me. It points out the depths of who we are not. But on the other hand, it points out the depths of what we can be and who God makes us. We're also reminded that despite our tendency to err, to make mistakes, when we seek forgiveness, Jesus still infinitely loves us. The cross represents God's greatest declaration of love to us that he wants to forgive us, that he wants to overcome our issues, that he will pursue us even when we, when we do not desire to pursue him. You see, there's this incredible irony in the cross. It is both a reminder of God's judgment. It totally is. But in the same breath, it whispers to us the reality of God's grace. It teaches us that while on it, Jesus took our judgment to show us God's grace because sin is serious. And this is a humbling thought, but it is also a powerful truth. And it is a truth that shapes or pushes the iceberg. And I want to explain what I mean by that. This week I came across an interesting statement that describes this sin-repentance reality, I think, pretty potently, especially in, in what we're seeing in Nehemiah, the fact that they're back at this tension point where they're recognizing where they failed God and trying to seek re- forgiveness for it. Now, I say that this is a statement that I read. I've kind of almost entirely rewritten it for clarity's sake, but I, I do want to share it with you. It'll be behind me. Think about Think about this statement in light of our love for God. When sin is significant in a person's life, it is because they have gotten to a place where they view God as insignificant. The confession of sin and humility that comes with it in Nehemiah 9 only makes sense when a person understands the greatness of the one who has been wronged. When we see God as very significant in our life, our tendencies towards sin become more insignificant. The short story, when sin is significant, God is not. But when God is is lifted up and our love and our affection is cast upon him, the significance of sin wanes. It doesn't mean it goes away entirely, but it means we begin pursuing a different end in life. And so to live in the power of the cross 
It means that we are learning to challenge the desire to sin. It means we're getting to the place where we're asking God for the strength to let our love and our affection for him trump our desire to walk away from him. When we live in a contrarian way to this, it's kind of like saying, listen, I prefer not to see the the cross as an instrument of God's grace, but a tool that I can further cause Jesus to suffer on. That's the whole premise of what Hebrews teaches us. I'm just going to continue to keep Jesus on it rather than continue to dwell in the grace that Jesus wants to show us through the cross. And we develop, if, if we get to this place where we're kind of comfortable saying that we follow God, but we don't struggle with this, then we develop a different kind of peace. We talk a lot about here about one of the promises of the gospel is Jesus' peace, the ability to kind of endure, to overcome, right? But we as believers, can, we can develop a different kind of peace, a problematic peace in our hearts. It's when we get comfortable re, uh, reducing Jesus' grace to cheap grace. It's when we get comfortable taking advantage of the goodness of our God. We, we have peace in our hearts with that. We live in the justification structure. And that bereaves the heart of God. Because remember, God is an emotional living being like us. So he's not just like up there talking about the arrows nine feet left of the bullseye. He's saying, this hurts my heart. When you live like this, you bereave me. You hurt me. You're living like somebody who is very far from me. And I want you to be very close to me. On the contrary, we see something very different happening in in Nehemiah. If you want to summarize what's happening in chapters 9 and 10, it would go like this. God's people finally get to the place where they recognize who God is because of his spirit. God's spirit is working in their lives. Upon seeing this, God then makes it very clear to them the places where they have to change. He begins reminding them of where they have failed, right? Showing them where they have erred in sin. But the story doesn't end there. Because the biggest thing we see happening here, the third thing, is that because God is gracious and they genuinely want to follow God again, God is faithful to show them tons of grace. It's that simple. And it's that beautiful. Now, even though the power to be freed from sin like that is readily available to us, some people are never going to experience it because they've yet to fully understand the weight of sin and the, and the significance of God's grace. It's important that we, that we understand these ideas in our minds and in our hearts. And with that in mind, here's how we'll kind of wrap up today. I want to briefly share with you two very common heart attitudes that indicate a person does not genuinely understand sin and repentance. There are lots of evidences of this, but these are two of what I would say are the, are the most common. Okay? The first is this. You won't experience God's grace if you hate the consequences of your sin more than you hate sinning against your God. Now, that seems like a semantical statement, but I want to explain it, and I want to say it again. You will not experience God's grace if you hate the consequences of your sin more than you hate sinning against your God. And so what this is talking about is is the person who gets to the place where they are more concerned about the potential consequences of sin in their life than they are having a heart-deep desire to lay down their sin in the pursuit of God. In short, you've learned to be okay with the sin in your life, but you hate the fact that if you get caught, there might be a consequence with it. And I'll give you two examples. Um, These are perhaps two of the most common that I've dealt with in the pastorate over the years. Uh, Think of a person first who... uh, who might be in like major financial straits, right? They are racked up in credit card debt. And what winds up happening is, is they know this. They sense that like, hey, I'm about to lose the house. The car's about to be gone. I'm not making enough money. to. Pay. I'm barely making enough money to pay my bills now. And they come to you and they say, listen, I'm in trouble, man. Like I'm, I'm in financial straits and I'm going to be on the street in six months if I don't figure this out. And so you, because you love that person and you're loving your neighbor, you sit down with them and you try to offer them some wisdom about how to manage their finances better so that they don't end up, you know, homeless. And what happens is, is as you begin talking to them, you realize there's a major spending habit here. 
they have a reckless problem with, with credit card spending. They just slide the card whenever, impulse buying. And perhaps the bigger issue is not the fact that they have this issue, but it's that they're okay with the issue. What you begin to sense is that they're not actually coming to you saying, hey, I'd like to figure out how to be better with my money. They're kind of saying, like, I wish I could talk to somebody who could wave a magic wand and make the debt go away. I still want to spend like this, but I just wish there wasn't any consequence of debt. They're okay with the sin, but they're not actually, excuse me, they're okay with the sin, but they are only, they're only concerned with the fact that there's a consequence because of it. They're not concerned with the, with the iceberg, the bottom of it. They're concerned with the tip. Here's another example. Think about relationships. Think about maybe people in your life who have a string of broken relationships in the past. Maybe they've mistreated friends or family. Maybe they have a, a poor understanding of what it means to love their neighbor. This is a person who, who really is frustrated with the fact that they don't have healthy relationships in their life. But the problem is that they don't want to actually do anything to, to correct the, the abusive relationships. What they want to do is, is wave a magic wand and they wish that they could continue to act this way and people would just love them for who they are. They're not at all willing to do the hard work to change, to get out of the, the situation that got them there in the first place, to correct the behavior that might even mar future relationships. If they could, they would continue to treat people poorly. With, if, if there was no consequence with it, they would just continue living like that. No matter what the situation is, we can apply this to almost anything. Hey, I know I'm having an affair. It's not the problem that I'm having an affair. It's just the fact that I might get caught, right? There's a million things going on here. I'm not really generous. I don't really care that I'm not generous. I'm just, I just care that somebody might find out, right? This is the issue here. No matter what the situation is, the person who loves their sin, who has gotten, they, they have peace in their heart with their sin, but they hate the consequence of it, they've truly, they've truly missed the mark. This is the, the whitewash thing Jesus is talking about. And oftentimes they often know what they're doing is wrong. They know it's hurting themselves and maybe even other people. They know it displeases God. But what they really want is not for God to help them overcome their sin. They just want him to remove the consequences associated with it. And so listen, if you come to this conclusion today or you have somebody in your life who is struggling with this, if you recognize that you're, you're okay with sin, just not the potential consequences of it, which the Bible says is a common heart attitude we can all drift into at times, it means that we've actually adopted a pretty problematic heart attitude. And it will absolutely keep us from experiencing God's grace. The cross is muted when we live like this. So the way that we get over this is we, we acknowledge it, we confess it to God, and we let his grace move us through the struggle. Second thing I want to mention to you is the, the secondary attitude, which will keep you from experiencing God's grace, is, is when you blame others for your sin. And this is very common too. Uh, this is the person who always uses another person, a situation, a job, whatever, as a scapegoat for their issue. And they'll say things like, hey, I'm selfish. Well, that's because my parents, it's my parents' fault, obviously. I'm unavailable to serve God because I'm busy and it's my job. I'm angry uh, all the time because you weren't there for me. And while these, at times, can be legitimate reasons, oftentimes they become trump cards for people uh, to defer blame to other people. And that guarantees that you'll never identify what our, your sin issue is or be able to change because the truth is, is we, we cannot fix something. We cannot even begin to work on the issue in our lives if we don't think that we had anything to do with it. And I'll share with you a personal story of this. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that my thorn in my side, um, this has been, you know, since my younger years and as a younger man, unquestionably was, was anger. It's been the thing that I have struggled with most of my life. And there are times when I still do struggle with it. I wish I could say like I never get angry, but, but I do get angry. And as a younger man, especially before I knew Jesus, I lived in a perpetual state of anger about something. And I usually had no problem uh, blaming my anger 
on someone or something else. You know, I was mad when my parents moved us from New York to Florida. I was mad when I felt like my friends didn't treat me properly. I was mad when I felt like life didn't go my way. I was just angry all the time. And being very honest, when, uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know my son, when he was five, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetic. Uh, I went through two very dramatic emotional cycles there. The first was grief. I mean, as a father, you just, you bleed for your kids when they're hurting. And that's where it started. But once I kind of reconciled my heart to the grief, I just got incredibly angry with God. I went through all those questions you ask when something happens in your life that you don't exactly understand why, why, why it happened. And you start deferring blame. And it was very easy for me for a season um, to, to basically cast my anger on God. All throughout life, I found that it was very easy to be very angry at something or someone else and to rather conveniently defer the blame for my anger to something or someone else. Now, I need you to hear this. Um, please know this, that living like this is detrimental to properly understanding sin and repentance. And I do thank God that over the years, as I've walked with Jesus, I've gotten far more comfortable being honest with him about the times I get angry. I've gotten far more comfortable bringing my, my sin to him, my anger to him. Because what I have found is that God is always faithful to shepherd my heart during those moments, and he is faithful to show me grace to overcome them. That's what God does. He doesn't say, don't bring this to me. I can't deal with this. He says, bring this to me. We've got to deal with this. You and I got to deal with this. We're going to overcome this. So the bottom line in all of this is this. If you want to genuinely repent, if you truly want to turn away from whatever it is you struggle with, from your sin, you've got to get comfortable with owning that. You've got to get comfortable with confessing it to God, not denying it or deferring blame for it to others. Because let's be frank, nobody ever really wants to admit where we make mistakes. That's not the thing we're trained to do in our culture. We're not trained to get up and and admit where we fail. But the inability to do so will rob us of the grace that God wants to show us to overcome the issue. We won't have peace in the fact that we can err and bring it to God and still be okay. We'll we'll live in that world where we're constantly trying to, to bury this stuff deep within our hearts. We push the bottom of the iceberg down deeper because we're just trying to make the little evidence of the tip. That's what we want people to see. So if you've come to the conclusion today that you're excusing sin, that maybe you're minimizing sin, that maybe you have an issue of blaming others for it, if you have people in your life who live like this, which the Bible says this is a common attitude amongst people, it means that you've adopted an unhealthy attitude that will keep you from genuinely experiencing God's grace. And so the result to this is simple. Identify it, confess it to God, and let him love you through your struggle. That's it. It's that simple. So as we close and approach the communion table which is the greatest evidence we have of how seriously God takes sin, I want you to think about this. Let this be your meditation point. Sin is refusing to see God as the Lord of your life. It's the act of casting his ways and his expectations behind you. By turning away, uh, we turn away from God's voice through his word. We, We begin to mute the voices of his people. It's not just that we stop doing the deeds that God wants us to do. It's far deeper than that. Think about this. To sin against God means we choose to reject God's grace, his care, his goodness, his love, his provision, and his mercy. We trade those things for what can often be very selfish desires of the heart. That is sin. Repentance, however, is when we understand that living in that manner, that that perpetually living like that, it greatly grieves and at times even angers our God. And because of that epiphany, what genuine repentance is, is our hearts begin to desire 
to make sin less significant in our lives by making God more significant. We don't beat ourselves up. We don't throw ourselves under the bus. We don't live in judgment and shame, but we just recognize that we have got to let the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ increase in our life. His significance increases so that the sinful desires of our hearts decrease. That is true repentance. It's when we recognize God's grace towards our sin was never meant to be a license to abuse God or his grace, which I think is perhaps the greatest issue in our Christian culture today. Rather, it was meant to be a catalyst to cause us to love and to honor God more deeply. And I'll leave you with this. The Apostle Paul puts it this way when he explains. He gives us, he says, hey, you want to know why grace has come? Let me explain this to you. He says, here's why grace has come in Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared. Remember, the grace of God is Jesus bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live godly lives in the present age, to live as if God is the most significant thing in our lives. That's what it means to repent and pursue him. So as we close this morning, ask yourself, when it comes to how you see sin or understand it, drop the isms and recognize that it hurts the heart of God. That's what sinning is, living in ways that hurt the heart of God. When we think of repentance, it's not just polishing the external of life. It's actually getting to the place where, where our hearts seek to love God more deeply. Repentance is walking away from the things that hurt God and migrating towards the things that, that, that please him so we can more deeply experience his love. And when we think about grace, especially as we talk about the cross, we've got to ask ourselves, is, do, do we properly understand grace? Or have we gotten to this comfortable place in our life where we might actually well in a little bit of cheap grace. We're okay with the cross, uh, but not necessarily living our lives in light of it. As we close this morning, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you, and what is it that you will do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for, we thank you for, uh, for what we see happening in Nehemiah. Again, we, we recall and kind of maybe even emphasize the humanity of this story. The fact that we see a people who um, man, at the beginning of this book, we're incredibly far from you. But because of your goodness and the desire of their hearts, we see them drawing very close to you again. And so it shows us, God, if for nothing less, there are so many applications and truths that we can derive from this, these, these chapters. If for nothing else, it shows us that no matter where we are in life, uh, all we have to do is look to you to be close to you again. No matter how far we are from you, no matter what we struggle with, no matter how, how we please you, God, we are always one step away from growing more deeply in our love for you by, by looking towards you, looking at you and experiencing your grace. And so I pray now, God, as we move towards the communion table, that you would genuinely let the bitter sweetness of the cross speak to us. May the hardness of it speak to our hearts. May we recognize, God, that the consequence of sin was the death of your son. But the reality of that is that through that death comes an immeasurable grace, a peace and a joy and a hope in life, God, that allows us to to experience a relationship that is unrivaled in what it means to be an adopted son or daughter of, of, of the King, of our Father in heaven. May we dwell on those two truths this morning, and may our hearts, God, be totally fixed on who you are in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.